Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise your name this morning. We give you honor, thanks for the salvation, the mutual salvation that we all share in. And Lord, we are grateful that you've not left us with subjective feelings to know who you are, but rather you've given us your objective word. So Lord, I lift up those in attendance this morning here and also over the internet that you would bless us in our studies, that you would enable us to understand your word so that we may be converted if we're not, that we may be conform to the image of your son if we are already converted. So Lord, we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I entitled the message, The Corinthians Must Glorify God in Their Bodies. Let me make a couple of nuanced statements before we get started, because I want to explain what this section is about. The Corinthians, in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, are going to be arguing for the right to sin. And what they're going to be doing is they're going to be making snide, uh, what I would say a snide argument against Paul in that Paul has taught them more than likely previously that they have been set free from the Mosaic law. But within the Mosaic law, they're not set free from the moral aspect, but rather the ceremonial and civil aspect of the Mosaic law. They are going to take that as license to sin. Okay? Now, In reality, what's really behind the motivation of the Corinthians to sin is the belief that the body doesn't matter, that they can do anything they want. Why? Because they have, an again, an overly realized eschatology where they believe because they are spiritual, it doesn't matter what happens in the body. That's immaterial. Whatever you do in the body, that doesn't matter. Okay, That's really what the motivating factor is, but they're going to use Paul's arguments against him, and that's what you're going to see in verses 12 through 20. So Paul is going to have to correct them. So with that, let me jump into verse 12 where you're going to see the Corinthians are distorting Paul's teaching. Paul writes this. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. This phrase, all things are lawful for me, is probably, again, their snide comment or remark against Paul. Because again, Paul had taught them, yeah, you're free from the Mosaic law. And so they're turning that and they're saying, well, we're going to do what we want with prostitutes. We're going to do what we want sexually. Why? Because we're free from the law, Paul. After all, isn't that what you taught us? You see what the deal is? And so he has to take their argument now that they're twisting that initially came from him and he's going to have to correct it. So all things are lawful for me. Paul's responding to the theological assertion of the Christians. Now, or the Corinthians, we know that this is probably an assertion that they're making because in 1 Corinthians 10.23, he, Paul says the same thing. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So the point being is the fact that this is reiterated so many times shows you that the Corinthians were saying this. Okay, This was a mantra that they were using. Again, Paul, you taught us that we we're free from the law. So why is it now that you're trying to bind us? And again, they're not making the distinction between the ceremonial and civil aspects of the Mosaic law and the moral aspect of the law. Remember, the ceremonial and the civil aspects of the law we're free from, but not the moral aspects. Okay, we'll never be free from that. We'll never have license to sin merely because we're Christians. That's a form of antinomialism that is being against the law. The Corinthians, therefore, again, are distorting Paul's teaching of freedom from the ceremonial law, that is, food, drink, circumcision, different days, etc., is freedom from the moral law. That's the issue, okay? Now, in the next section here, 
we have to make a decision. There's a Greek word, it's called de, and it's a conjunction. It usually is translated but or and in your English version. And the debate centers on whether in the New American Standard, I have it highlighted, in fact, four times, is it translated either connective or adversative? Okay, now what's the difference? And by the way, I don't mean to be so nerdy with all of you on these things, but I want you, a lot of you have commentaries, and my goal is to help you read the commentaries. If you see the discussion, you'll understand it better because you've been exposed to what's connective, what is adversative. And also, I want you to see what's out there in scholarship. What are scholars wrangling about in the interpretation of the text? I want to expose you to those things. So I'm going to read you the New American Standard Bible, verses 13 through 14, and then I'm going to contrast that with Gordon Fee, who I think understands how this should be interpreted a little bit better. Okay, and I'll explain why. This is what the New American Standard says. It says, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Notice this first dead that I have here. They have it as what's called an adversative. An adversative, just think of an adversary. Some, somebody's against you. Okay, so in English you would say, well, Jerry says this, but I say this. That's an adversative. There's usually a but. Okay, a connective would be and, and he did this, and he did that. It just continues the thought. So what I want you to see is the NAS has an adversative here, whereas Gordon Fee has a connective. Now, why? Well, let me read the first portion, and I'll explain why. Gordon Fee thinks these should be rendered this way. He says, food is for the stomach, and stomach is for the food, and God will do away with both of them. Okay, now let me stop there. The, the reason why Gordon Fee is comfortable in understanding this conjunction as and is because he sees a chiastic structure that I didn't have room to put on here. But here's the issue. He understands that Paul is in agreement with one of their statements. Yes, Paul is saying food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. And yeah, God will do away with both of them. In that, you're right. Okay, you're right on that, Corinthians. Now here comes the but. Okay, and the but they have up here, N-E-S-B is yet. That's probably okay. But is stronger though. It lets you know Paul is contrasting what has gone before and he's saying, but you're wrong on this account. But the body is not for immorality. What you said about food in the stomach, you cannot apply to sexual sin. That's what Paul is saying. And that's why Gordon Fee is right in understanding this conjunction here as an adversative. Okay, so but the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. And God has both raised the Lord and will also raise us up through his power. The point being, if God has raised Christ from the dead, and he's also going to raise you, he owns it all. And therefore, you can't make the claim, I can send it up in the body. It doesn't matter, because that's what the Corinthians are really saying. That's really behind their argument. Paul is saying, no, 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 he's going to raise both. And so that's why it's important to get this day right. Isn't it amazing how an understanding of a passage can really hang on just how we understand a conjunction? So I think Gordon Fee gets it right. Now, let me just put the same thing up again, and I'll just show you what the issue is again. I put in bold, that is in bold black here, again, what... Paul would agree with the Corinthians on. He says, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for the food. And yes, God will do away with both of them. But here's the idea. Paul grants the first slogan, that's what's bolded in black, but does not allow the Corinthians to apply this slogan to sexual immorality. But the body is not for immorality. So let me just show you, if you will, think of it as an equation. This is the the equation that's in the Corinthians' mind. Okay, this is their confusion. 
They're saying food for the stomach and stomach for the food, right? The same thing is equal to sex for the body and body for sex. Okay, that's in their mind. You can do both. Why? We're free from the law, Paul. Didn't you say that? They're distorting it, right? And so Paul has to put the brakes on and say, no, no, no. But the body is not for immorality. So here's the confusion, and this is how Paul is going to alleviate it. He's going to say, no, this is not an equation. The problem with food for the stomach and stomach for the food, or I should say, there's no problem there because you're free from the ceremonial law. You can eat anything you want. You can eat shellfish. It doesn't matter if you eat dairy products with meat products. None of that matters. You're right. You're free from that aspect of the law. That's moral. But what you're doing here is immoral. Okay? Because this is part of the moral law of God that never goes away. And the only time it's okay to have sex is in the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. Okay? That's the only time it's acceptable. So that's what Paul is going to have to do. He's going to have to say, no, 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 this is always going to be immoral and therefore you can't lump them together. Is that, is that understandable? So that's what he's going to have to do. Okay, now, what I want to do is we're going to come back to this subject in 1 Corinthians 9, but I want to introduce it here because it's one of the most important subjects that Christians can wrestle with is in what way are we, as Christians, free from the law? Okay, Because in one sense, the new covenant what it's really about is being separated now from the Mosaic Covenant and its obligations. But in what way? Okay, so let me just remind you of something that you've probably all have read. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 20, Paul says this. He says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win those who are Jews. And to those under the law I became like one under the law, although I myself am not under the law. And then in verse 21 he continues. He says, To those who are without law as without law though not being without what? The law of God, okay? But under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law, so that by all possible means I might win some. Or he became all things to all people, so that by all possible means he might win some. That's the idea. Now here, follow the logic though. He says, he became one as without the law, though not being without the law of God, okay? So in one sense, he's without the law, but in another, he's bound to it still. Okay, and so that's where we have to go to say, well, in what respect are you free from the law and what law, in what respect are you still bound to it? And in fact, he says that this uh, not being without the law of God is synonymous with being uh, under the law of Christ. Okay, so here's how I understand it, and I'll be upfront about this. Not every good Christian evangelical scholar agrees with this, and let me explain. I see the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, in three aspects. I see the ceremonial portion of it, that is the food, Sabbath, sacrifices, etc. These were the aspects of the law that foreshadowed the coming of Christ. Okay, so uh, circumcision would be in this. The cutting of the male was a symbol of one day the seed would be cut because there can be no covenant established without a cutting of the covenant. Korath bereath in Hebrew, you cut a covenant, okay? So the covenant is established what? In Christ's blood. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is, or the, this is uh, me establishing the new covenant, which is in my blood, right? And it's established by him being cut, all right? So that all foreshadowed. So when Christ comes, you don't have to still be circumcised. Why? Because what it pointed to is there. The sacrificial system has been done away with. Why? Because our sacrifice has come. The other thing that the ceremonial law did is it separated the Israelites from the rest of the world. Why would that be important? Because the Messiah is going to come from Israel. If they're all intermingled with the rest of the world, then you don't have a clean genealogy. 
So they needed this for separation. But now that Christ has come, you don't need to be separated. In fact, you want to get out in the world and proclaim salvation comes through only faith in Christ. So the ceremonial law, friends, has been done away with. What about the civil law? Well, these are property rights, uh, the treatment of slaves, something called casuistic law, that is cases of injury to others. If so-and-so does this, you do that. Okay, why? Because Israel was unique in that it was a theocratic kingdom. Okay, they had to have cities of refuge. Do we have to have cities of refuge in America? And if we don't, are we violating the law of God? No, because that was only for Israel. We're free from that. And Paul has taught the Corinthians as much. But the problem was, is they were saying, well, yeah, okay, Paul, you're, you're saying we're free from this, we're free from that, but we're also free from this. And that's where Paul says, no, you're not free from the moral law. This is the law that is binding forever. It will always be immoral to cheat on your wife. It will always be immoral to be an idolater. It will always be immoral to steal, to murder, those sort of things. Really, I look at the the Ten Commandments minus the fourth because that has to do with Sabbath. Remember, according to Colossians 2.16, we're no longer bound to the Sabbath, right? Why? Because we're in our Sabbath rest now through faith in Christ, okay? So, friends, we're never going to be free from the moral law. That's going to be with us unto eternity. Now, to give you further ammunition that Paul agrees with my line of reasoning, I think, or (laughs) I should say my line of reasoning agrees with Paul. That would be a much better way of saying it being that he's the inerrant, uh, uh, teaching the inerrant word of God. But I just want you to see that there's more ammunition that Paul gives to this argument. 1 Corinthians 7.19, he says, Circumcision is nothing. Now remember, where is circumcision? Well, that's up here. He says, that's nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. So that doesn't matter anymore. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. So what's he talking about there? I think he's talking about the commandments of God is the same thing as the moral law, which is the same thing as the law of Christ. That'll never go away. So in a sense... When Christ came, the Mosaic law has been done away with. But that moral aspect will always be with us. Okay, that's the idea. All right, and then I'll, when we get into this section, I'll make an argument too that Jesus gives in Matthew 23, 23. I think actually supports this as well. Now, good Christian scholars will say, Eric, you're making too much. You can't make divisions between the law, that is ceremonial, civil, and moral, that the scriptures themselves don't make. My rebuttal to that is they believe in the Trinity, yet the term Trinity is not in the text. Okay. Why do they believe in the Trinity? Because the concept is taught. And I think the same thing applies here. The concept is taught. At the end of the day, if you ask people, do you have to be circumcised? They'll say no. You say, why? Well, because I'm free from that. Well, we can put labels on that. It's okay. It's okay to say, well, that's part of the ceremonial law. Can I cheat on my wife? No, you can't. Why? Well, it's because of the moral law. You have to put some sort of descriptor on it. Otherwise, so it's, it's okay to build categories that you see in Scripture. That's the point. Even though they're not put there by the Scriptures themselves. Does that make sense? We want to be careful. We don't want to impose categories that really aren't there. But if they're there, let's, let's build categories that are helpful. I think it's okay. Okay. Now, we'll move on here to, again, Paul's question. And at the end of the day, what he's asking them is, do you want to be united to Christ or to a prostitute? That's the problem, that they want to be united to a prostitute instead. Verses 15 through 17, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. That's the most emphatic way he can say that that should never be done. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, now here comes Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, follow Paul's logic here. He has another chiastic structure. Here's the logic. He says their bodies, that is the Corinthians, are members of Christ's body. Verse 14. Okay, now, why? Because he's purchased everything. 
when he was raised from the dead, when he died, was buried, and raised from the dead, he provided our atonement. He purchased every bit of us. He didn't just purchase our soul. He purchased our body, too. He owns it all. He owns every bit of us. That's the issue. And so, therefore, they may not be members of a prostitute's body. Okay? And why? Well, because they become one flesh. There's an idea of union. Are we united to Christ or a prostitute? You can't have both. Our Lord is a jealous God. Okay? And he won't tolerate us being yoked to something else. And so Paul continues the logic. He says, joined to a prostitute, they become one body with her. That's the problem. So therefore, joined to Christ, they become one spirit with him. So who are we joined to? Are we going to be joined in union to sin or to Christ? And they're incompatible. That's Paul's theological reasoning. Christ owns every bit of you. Yes, you own your body, but Christ owns you. Therefore, he owns every bit of you. Therefore, if you're united to a prostitute, it's incompatible with being in Christ. And therefore, it cannot be tolerated. We're, um, Larry likes this. We're in the no-sin zone, right? You guys have all heard the no-spin zone. We're in the no-sin zone in the, in the church of the living God. That's the issue. Now, in verse 18, Paul, notice he says, flee immorality. I'm just going to, it's 18 through 20, but I'm only going to go through verse 18 on this slide. He says, flee immorality. Interesting, that term flee, is a, it's a present active imperative. So it's a command because it's imperative, but in the present tense, it means continuously do this continuously flee from sin. Notice Paul doesn't say fight it. Fight it wherever you find it. No, it's flee. <laughs> okay? Okay, the, the soldier, this is, he's not calling you to be a soldier who fights. He's calling you to be a coward who runs. Okay? Don't stand and fight it. Flee and do it continuously. Always run from it. Flee from immorality. And I guess, uh, and I think that, again, in the Greek is pornia, that is sexual immorality in particular. Now he continues, he says, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, this is a very difficult verse to interpret. Let me explain why. Notice it says every other sin. That other really isn't in the Greek text. It's the NASB trying to make sense of it, which is good. I mean, they're, they're trying to do a fair rendering. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And remember, the immoral man is the one who sins sexually. Now, here's the question. Aren't there other sins that you can do that would be against the body? So, for instance, let's say I self-mutilate myself. Isn't that against the body? What about um, if I kill myself? Well, what do you call that? Suicide, Suicide thank you. <laughs> Suicide, of course. Isn't that against the body? So what is Paul saying here? That this is the only, if you sin sexually, that is the only sin against the body. And that's what scholars are wrestling with. So there's two, I think, good ways of understanding this passage. The first one is this. And again, I've highlighted up here, down here again, but I left out the other because it's not really there. What Paul is saying is this. He's parroting what the Corinthians are saying. Every sin that a man commits is outside the body. Okay? So that's their argument. He's parroting another theological slogan that they're throwing out. Now, why would they be saying every sin that a man commits is outside the body? The reason why is because what you do in the body doesn't matter. So the real sin is outside the body. That is what you do in the spirit. That would be their argument. But, Paul says, here we have, again, the adversative, they're wrong. But you're wrong. The immoral man sins against his own body. Don't you know that? See, so he's correcting them right there. That would be the first view. So, again, Paul is reiterating a slogan that they're using that real sin occurs outside the body, that is, in the spirit. And you can do whatever you want in the body because the body doesn't matter. And Paul says, no, you can't do whatever you want in the body. Okay. Now, the second view is the one that Gordon Fee has. And he says, the issue is this. Sexual immorality strikes at the heart of the body 
being physical or being for the Lord. It's not concerned with what physically affects the body per se. Does that make sense? So there's something particularly egregious about sexual sin because it creates a union to something sinful rather than union to Christ, which we already are a part of through faith in Christ. So the issue is what's so egregious about sexual sin and why it's particularly egregious against the body is because Christ owns that body and the issue is union. Will we be united to Christ spiritually or will we be physically united to a prostitute or something to that effect, something immoral, but we can't have both, okay? We're in the no-sin the no zone, okay? We can't have it both ways. And so that's why, so the issue isn't marking your body. That's, that's bad or, or, you know, suicide or something to that effect, but this is specifically a sin that has to do with who are you united to, okay? Now, the strengths of the first view is, notice Paul has used parroting. He's parroted earlier on in the, the section that we're in, the Corinthians arguments. You say this, but I say that. Okay? Well, that may be what's going on here. Okay? But notice how Gordon Fee understands this passage. Listen to how Gordon Fee would understand it. He says every... Now, remember, this isn't there. Every sin that a man commits is outside the body. He would understand this conjunction as acceptive. Okay? So every sin that a man commits is outside the body, yet the immoral man sins against his own body. Okay? So it's not an adversative but, but it's an acceptive. Yet, the immoral man sins against his own body. Okay, something to that effect. So the, the point being here, friends, both of these are very compelling. Probably number two is correct because the previous verse. Let me just back up. The issue is that they become one flesh. The idea is union. And that's what Gordon Fee is saying. The real issue is the fact that when you engage in sexual sin, you're creating a union to that sin rather than to Christ. And so therefore, I think Gordon Fee's probably right. It's probably number two. Okay, but nonetheless, they're both very good options. Okay, now, let me focus in on another part of the verse, verse 19, where he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Okay, now let me just stop there. The debate now surrounds what does Paul mean by a temple, okay? Now, this is where I was talking to Bob this past week, and he laughs about when he and Chris Roseboro get together, they sometimes have a nerd fest, they call it. <laughs> and that's where they get into technical discussions. Now, I'm going to invite you into another nerd fest. But again, my goal is to help you see what's in scholarship, help you be aware of some of the theological debates that are out there. And also, there will be some out here this morning that want to go deeper into these issues. And at least I want to let you know that these issues are there. And so the issue is something called Colwell's Rule, which has to do with whether this temple should be definite, indefinite, or qualitative. Now, what's the difference? Well, notice that New American Standard has translated this indefinite. It's a temple. Okay, but it's very possible that, in fact, it could be definite, the temple. Or it could be qualitative, temple-like, temple-ness. You know what I'm saying? Of the temple-like quality. Now, at the end of the day, the debate about this passage and Colwell's rule doesn't have a lot of theological import, but there are other passages that do. So Gordon Fee sees Colwell's rule at stake. Now, I'm going to put up Colwell's rule. Here's a scholar, Ernest Colwell, in 1933, wrote a journal article, and all of his study was about how a predicate nominative functions in the Greek text. Now, don't glaze over. I'm going to explain every term that we have. Okay? Follow me through on this one. Colwell's rule. 
Now, I know this sounds weird, okay, and you're not going to want to bring this up at dinner parties, but just follow me through. I'm going to explain every, every word of this. Colwell's rule, he's, and, and by the way, isn't it amazing that we have men who d- dedicate their lives to such things? And praise God because they help us understand the scripture. So here was Colwell's rule all the way back from 1933. He said this, an anarthrous, and by the way, it's every time in the scriptures, an anarthrous preverbal predicate nominative is usually qualitative, sometimes definite, and rarely indefinite. Don't glaze over. What does anarthrous mean? Anarthrous simply means it doesn't have the article, the. It's without the article. That's all it means. Okay? So remember, in the Greek text, there's no indefinite article. There's only the article, the, or no article. Okay? So he said an anarthrous preverbal, that is before the verb, predicate nominative. Now, what is a predicate nominative? It's any pronoun or noun that comes after a linking verb that renames the subject. So let me give you a really easy example. If somebody calls you and says, is that you, Jerry? And you say, it is I. That would be good English. Why? It is the subject, is is the linking verb, and I is the predicate nominative. You can't say it is me because I has to be in the nominative case. It's a predicate, but the nominative case is the case of the subject. Okay, so you can't say it is me. All right, you'd be incorrect. You have to say it is I, even though it sounds funny. So I is a predicate nominative. Okay, now, I'm going to show you how theologically important this is when we come to John 1.1. We can actually beat the Jehovah Witnesses and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is God by using Colwell's rule. In John 1.1, remember in John 1.1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then in 1.1c it says, And the Word was God. Okay, now this last section is extremely important. Here's why. We have to first find our subject. Our subject is ha-lagos. Everybody knows what lagos is. It's word, right? And we know this is the subject of the sentence because it has the definite article. Okay, is everybody with me? Now, where would our predicate nominative be? Well, our predicate nominative is theos. Okay, right here. All right? And notice it's before the verb. This is a verb was, ain. Okay? Now, why is that important? Well, notice the rule. An anarthrus. Okay, anarthrus means it doesn't have the article. Here's the article. Do we have an article before theos? Nope. So it is anarthrus. Is it preverbal? Yep, it, becomes, it comes before the verb, right? We read left to right. So it comes before the verb, and it is a predicate nominative. It is usually qualitative, sometimes definite, and rarely indefinite. In fact, rarely I should probably put in there never indefinite. In John's gospel, it'll never be indefinite. Why is that important? Because here's what this is saying. It says that the word, that is Christ, was God. That is, he was God himself. Okay, he was very God. He was of the same quality of God. He is God in every respect. But yet, he is not the same person as the Father. Okay, so this is one of the most beautifully, theologically compact statements you can make. So in other words, does everybody know of a heresy called Sabellianism? Sabellianism is also, the term I like better is modalistic monarchianism. Now, I know that's a bigger word, but think of monarch means king. Mode means he changes mode, right? So that would be the idea that you have one God. You have the Father, and then he just puts on a different costume. Now he puts on the Son costume. It's only one God and one person. Well, then he puts on the Holy Spirit costume, and he just switches costumes. You don't have one God and three persons. You have one God and one person. Okay, now if John had written this text this way, notice what it says, and the word was the God. Notice that if you had the article in front of Theos here, then you have Sabellianism. 
that the word is indistinguishable between the Father. That is, Jesus is the Father. Well, that's heresy. That's why it's so important that John wrote what he wrote. Okay? And if you had it this way, the Jehovah Witnesses were right, would be right. And the word was God. Well, notice now, this isn't pre-verbal. And if it's not pre-verbal, it can be indefinite. And therefore, it would be correct to say, and the word was a God. But it doesn't say that. It says, and the word was God. The word had the quality of God. He was God himself, but yet he wasn't the Father. They're not the same person. These are two people that what Jesus is of the same caliber as the Father, yet he's not the Father. And so this beautifully compact statement, because of Colwell's rule, proves that we have Jesus who is fully God, but yet he's not the Father. They're different people, so it supports the Trinity. So in this beautifully compact statement, we eliminate Sabellianism and Arianism. Now, Let's take this rule, because Gordon Fee says it's there, let's take it to our text in 1 Corinthians 19. And his take is that, yes, here's our predicate nominative, and it comes before the verb. Here's the verb right here. And so therefore, he says, it must be either, what does it say, definite or qualitative. 80% of the time, it's going to be qualitative, and only 20% of the time, it's going to be definite. So I would actually say that this is qualitative. Now, here's why it's important into our passage this morning. Paul is saying something extremely important. He is saying to you and me, qualitatively, you are the temple. You are just like, not, you're not just a temple. You're like a temple of the Holy Spirit. No, that's missing it. That's missing it. You are qualitatively now the temple. And you are the temple in a way that's never existed in some respects. So you had the Old Testament temple, but in the Old Testament temple, God would pack up his stakes and he'd leave if the people sinned, okay? Showing that his favor was no longer upon them. No longer is that the case. The Holy Spirit is going to reside in us. How long? Forever, okay? So that's the issue. So let me bring you to the Old Testament here. So it's qualitative. That's how I would understand it. Our body is, in fact, the temple of the Holy Spirit in a qualitative sense, So, first of all, let me ask the question, how is God present in us? Are we merely shells so that God can exist in us? Or does God exist everywhere anyway? Okay, so in other words, when it says the Holy Spirit is in you, is there a piece of God that is in you that isn't anywhere else? Is it an ontological statement? No, I think it's a statement of relationship. Let me just share a passage with you from David. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Psalm 139, 7 through 9, David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. So God is everywhere anyway. So what does it mean that God dwells with us? It means that he has bestowed his favor upon us uniquely. Yes, he's everywhere. But when he's in Larry or he's in Dick or he's in uh, Rick or anybody here, you have favor with him. It's the idea of having favor with God. God has indwelt you and he abides in you, remains in you, so that you have no longer to worry about his wrath being bent towards you. The Old Testament, God had promised, Exodus 25, 8, he says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. This term dwell, a shekan. That's where we get the idea of the shekinah glory, the dwelling presence of God. But what happens is the people end up sinning and God packs up the tent. He takes, he takes the stakes and he leaves. That is his Shekinah dwelling presence, his favor from the people. Okay, so for instance, we see that in Ezekiel 10, 18. And remember, the Israelites had fallen into idolatry. They had gone after foreign gods. And so in Ezekiel, it says this. It says, Then the glory 
of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple. He pulled up the stakes. He couldn't stand it anymore. So his favor, that is his glorious presence with the Israelites, he left because they had sinned egregiously against him. Now, they're still elect. There's still a plan for him. Don't make that mistake. But in the temporary time, he had left. He was gone. Okay? Now, it's interesting, this term glory is kavoth in, in Hebrew. Remember in 1 Samuel 4, the Israelites are defeated in battle by the Philistines. And you have Phineas. Remember, she is the daughter-in-law of Eli, the, the priest. Well, she has birth and she dies at birth. And the son that she gives birth to is Ikavoth or Ichabod. And the reason why it's Ichabod is because, remember, the, the ark was taken away and the glory of the Lord had departed. That term comes from kavoth, which is for glory, and e is an adverb saying, no, it's no glory. And that's exactly what happened um, in the destruction of the temple at 586. There was no glory there anymore. Why? Because the people had sinned gr- grievously against God. And no longer would he show their favor to them. But we're different in the new covenant. Listen to what happens to us in the new covenant. Jesus, first of all, he comes again. What had departed, that is the glory of God, comes back. John 1, 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt, again, like the Shekinah glory among us, and we saw his kavoth. Would be, it would be doxa in Greek, but we saw his glory. Okay, so the glory is coming back. Now it's the time for God's favor. And in John 14, 16 through 17, Jesus, as he's about to leave, he makes this great promise. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another parakletos, another helper. Now, who is our first helper? Jesus is. This is how beautiful it is. Jesus is doing what right now? He's in the heavenly realms making constant intercession for you. He's the first helper, the first parakletos. But we also have a second one. That is the Holy Spirit. He didn't leave us alone, he said. In fact, he says that he may be with you for how long? Forever. Forever. He's not going to pick up the ten stakes anymore, even though you sin. Okay? Even though you may sin, he's not going to pick up the ten stakes and leave anymore. That's amazing. That is an amazing thing. He says that in the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So he will be with us forever. And so again, what is spiritual here then becomes physical again at the millennial kingdom and into the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21.3, and, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. God will physically dwell with his people. So what's spiritual now, that is the Holy Spirit is showing us favor and he's dwelling with us, will be manifested physically. That's the idea. Okay, and it will be with us forever. All right. Now, here's the issue, though. The Corinthians must live like who they are, okay? Verses 19 through 20, again. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. You've been purchased by Christ. And therefore, he owns every bit of you. He owns your body. He owns your soul. He owns it all. You can't make the division between body and soul. He owns it all. And he says, therefore, glorify God in your body. That's what we are to do. So again, think of a passage like Ephesians 4.30 where Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Grieving, you can't grieve, first of all, a force, right? You can only grieve a person. That's proof that the Holy Spirit is a person. But the other point is, is that notice the Holy Spirit, it's not the idea that he's going to leave. It's that you're grieving him, okay? That you're grieving him if you sin. And notice that we're sealed by him, which means we're owned by God. It's for... It really be better rendered probably until until the day of redemption. So this is the down payment, and he's with you forever. 
Okay, what's the idea then? The idea is the Corinthians have to start acting like who they are. They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And yeah, God isn't going to pack up and leave, but they're grieving him. They're grieving the living God, and they ought not to do so. Not because they're trying to earn their salvation, but out of gratitude. You and I are people that out of gratitude, we want to please our God. And of course, there is this converse idea that if you continue to sin against the living God, it's evidence that you were never believers to begin with. And so that's certainly a risk as well. So the Corinthians, friends, have to start acting like who they are, and they have to realize that they cannot do anything in the body. God owns both of them. So here, let me just recap what the problem is and Paul's remedy. The Corinthian spirituality said what we do in the body doesn't matter. Why? We're above that. Their over-realized sense of being spiritual, of eschatology. We've arrived. What we do in the body doesn't matter. Paul's response, the body of every believer belongs to the Lord. He has purchased his people through the cross and has deposited his spirit in them and therefore has the rights to the entirety of their person. And so it is with us today. And so what I'd like to leave you with is this, that we must believe this and act on it. We have to be the people of God who say, I will not compartmentalize my life and say God can have this portion of it, but not this. He owns it all. He owns my body, my soul, my business, every thought that I have, I'm to take captive to Christ. He owns it all, and he has a right to it. That's the type of people we are to be. And I'll just say for my own life, I'm a guy who likes to compartmentalize. I just like I'm doing this now, I'm doing this now. And in my way of thinking, I'm very prone to say, well, I'm going to keep this little bit of sin in my life. That's not for the Lord. The Lord is saying, no, no, that is not an option. It's all mine. It's all mine. Okay, so perhaps this morning some of you have an area like this. Friends, repent, give it to the Lord, say it's all yours. I think that's how... Corinthians speaks to us still today. So with that, I'll open it up to any questions or comments, and I apologize for our, our nerd session. <laughs> oh, yeah, Bill. In the Renaissance, a very popular thing that was expressed about God was that he wrote two books. It's called the two-book theory, uh, the book of Scripture, and the book of nature. And, you know, creation was a, a book and it represented a creator, his, his mindset, his attributes mm-hmm. as expressed in, the, in a material world. Mm-hmm. Okay, so marriage is an allegory, scripturally, you know, mm-hmm. uh, is used as an allegory of um, God marrying the church. Yeah. And, um, you know, here we got... You know, one of the bigger issues today is this business of uh, homosexual union in marriage and all this stuff. Yeah. And it really represents uh, what the Bible says is uh, you're you're marrying a prostitute. Yeah. You know. And I I don't know I when as you're reading through you know your your uh, your notes, all I could see was uh, one allegory and metaphor after another. And how everything seemed to, uh, you know, were to live our lives representing something. Yeah. Allegorically. Yeah. Yeah, Bill, I, I like that. You're right. In Ephesians 5, the marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of Christ and the church. And so anytime, if you think about, think about this idea that 
anytime there's been a marriage since Adam and Eve, you've had a picture constantly before mankind of what God has done for his people, that he's become intimate with them, that he is theirs and they are his. And when we have a perverse behavior like homosexuality or um, whatever it may be, heterosexual sin, what we're doing is we're distorting that beautiful picture, that picture of what God has done for his people. And it happens time and time again. And so again, because God is the lawgiver and he wants to bring glory to himself, he can use marriage and he does use marriage to make a picture of what he has done for his people. And so, yeah, sexual sin is a distortion of that and therefore it detracts from his glory in that sense. So, yeah. So, so you know, going further, if a body of believers that embrace a belief system express their beliefs by their actions and their rituals and, and the way they carry out their affairs socially and culturally and financially, yeah. wouldn't it be possible to decode or reverse engineer a belief system based upon looking at how people carry out their affairs? I think I see what you're saying. In other words, a non-believer would certainly, their worldview would become evident through their actions. Yeah, I, I think certainly that's the case. Now, and I know you're not saying this, I've always been, the last, anyway, five years, it's always bothered me the saying, and I don't remember how the saying goes precisely, but the idea that we'd, it's better to live the gospel than to preach it. You know that idea? That I don't preach the gospel, I just live it. No, we've got to preach the gospel. Okay, that's how people, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We have to preach the gospel and make disciples, but it's not exclusive to, and it does not get rid of the notion that we have to live it as well. I mean, it's not either or, it's both and. So let's just make sure that's clear as well. So, yeah, I mean, we have, you should be able to look at someone's life and, yeah, it should be reflecting if they're a believer, God's glory and um, the things of the Word of God for sure. So, yeah. Anybody else? In uh, chapter 3, verse 16, it says that you are a temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And that would be referring to the local church. Yeah, that's, it's a great so, point. In fact, the church is the temple of God in Corinth. And you're right. In fact, I should have pointed that out. I'm glad you did. But my, my question is, yeah. wouldn't that make, in chapter 6, a temple of God for the body be more appropriate? Well, the, the only difference is, is there's something, I think, different being stated. And the difference is, is yes, the, it's related in the sense that the Corinthians, again, as a group, they can't act like who they are because, what, they're the temple of God at Corinth. In this meek and pagan place, they're the only thing that's representing them. But there's a greater, I think, theological truth in that now the Holy Spirit has resided in the individual believer in the sense that we have favor with God, that he dwells with us, he abides in us in the sense that he's no longer angry with us. We're forever reconciled and righteous in his sight. But again, that doesn't give us license to sin, right? So we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we've been sealed until the day of redemption. That's the idea. So, And again, Colwell's rule, the reason why I got into that is because Gordon Fee sees that as applicable here. And I agree, although Gordon Fee thinks it would be definite, that is, it would be the temple. But what's interesting is when you look at, for instance, Daniel Wallace's Greek grammar, 80% of the time it's actually qualitatively, or used, the, the article would be qualitative, or I should say the predicate nominative would be qualitative, and only 20% of the time it would be definite. Okay, And so, you know, how do you translate, though, 
a qualitative aspect to that. You know, your temple-like. The point being is more than likely it's qualitative, that we are now of the same quality as the temple. But there's a different, there's a nuance there that God will never depart from us. He has bestowed his favor upon the believer and it'll never leave. So that's how I would understand it. Yeah. Yeah, as you were going through the modalism and the yeah. Trinity and stuff like that, it, this, this idea popped into my head and it, it just became more clear to me. And I think it's because of the, the, my business background. Well, certain companies, and I don't think anybody, everybody in here is going to totally relate to this, but you have, you have like the company, and mm-hmm. the company can have three different legal entities. Sure. Okay, now each legal entity has its own characteristics, maybe its own products, et cetera, et cetera, right? Sure. When you answer the phone, you say, hello, the company. You know, sure. and yeah. com- so you have company A, company B, and company C. Well, company A, because they have distinct characteristics, maybe products, features, whatever, yeah. they can't just all of a sudden say, you know, morph into company B magically or something like that. I mean, they're distinct right. entities, you know. Yeah. So now, of course, usually when you have company A, B, and C, there's something you've acquired or something like that, but you'd have to, you'd have to imagine this as being company A, B, and C have always existed alone with the company. Sure. And so, <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's just kind of a... That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, it just kind of popped into my head that way. It's, yeah, it I love how you kind think. of sort it all a bit because the, the Trinity's kind of mysterious, you know. It is. I got into a debate with a guy who was one of these guys who had... Um, some degree in religious studies and for whatever reason these people make a lot of mistakes by the way notice the universities it's no longer the department of theology it's the department of religion rc sproul makes a great comment that's because society has taken their theology is about the study of god religion really is about the study of man and so the colleges have changed it to religion because they don't want to really study god they want to just be anthrop you know they want to be centered on man that's the idea but what's interesting is this man he was telling me that it was a contradiction to have one God and three persons, okay? And that was a contradiction. Friends, it's not a contradiction, the, the Trinity, okay? It would be a contradiction to say that God is one person and three persons at the same time, the same relationship. That would be a contradiction. But what we're saying is that in one sense, God is one. He's one God, but then he's in three persons, okay? So we're not saying that he's one and three at the same time in the same way. All right. An analogy I like to use is we have one government, right? But we have the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch. So if the guy picks up the phone in the legislative branch, he can really say there's United States government. So can the president, and so can somebody on the Supreme Court. And now every analogy breaks down a little bit because God is eternal, and the, the you know the beings are eternally identical in power. They submit to one another. In other words, there's subordination within the Trinity. In other words, you could say, well, the executive branch is more powerful than the judicial branch. Well, yes, the analogy breaks down somewhat, but do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I like your analogy. It's a good one. It's good to be thinking about that. How do I explain it to unbelievers, this, this business of the Trinity? Yeah. Yep. I just find it so inspiring to think on these things, and I'm yeah. wondering if you would be able to further comment, like now we see through the, the glass darkly, but then when he tabernacles among us, then when we see him, we will be like him. Yeah. And just wondered if you would more fully comment on that. Yeah, I don't know exactly what the resurrected body will be like, but certainly our sin nature will be dealt with finally. And um, we will be able to look on him as he is. And um, it is, it's going to be an amazing thing. So this down payment of the Holy Spirit, God is truly tabernacling with us. But one day what's spiritual will be made completely physical. And we will see him as he is. The down payment 
remember, even that there's a down payment, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. That's the down payment. We're going to get the rest later. All of us will be raised from the dead. So what we have now is just a portion, and it will be consummated. What's spiritual now will be physical. And that's why we're, we're meant to be physical beings. And that's why the body is so important. And the Corinthians were wrong. They, they were saying the body doesn't matter. It does. In fact, it matters for eternity. God will resurrect it and change it. And so it will be compatible with who he is. So, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yep. Uh, Larry. Well, thank you for uh, doing all your study and getting us into these oh, nerdy well, I, terms. It's, it's not me. It's, it's these other men who have gone before us. So praise God for good Well, I, I understand that you go through that because when I went and did that debate against that Jehovah Witness slash Aryan believer, yeah. and I ran across a lot of those same terms, Colwell's rule yeah. as well as uh, Granville Sharp's rule. Yeah. You mentioned something uh, that John 14, 16, and if anybody has that Vines expository dictionary that came out in the last... I guess 15 years, and mm. you look in the portion of the New Testament words where it describes, you know, gives you a little introduction to it. Yeah. It uses this passage as an example where it says, you know, I will give you another helper. That's Alan Palakletos. Yeah. That's a qualitative statement, which is not homo paracletos, which is, you know, something different. Right. But Alan, which is of a qualitative uh, understanding it. Thank you for taking us into these terms because believe me, I know the study is deep and thank you for uh, doing what you do. Oh, well, thanks, Larry. No, I love that. That's a great point. So yeah, this this helper is no less God than the second person of the Trinity is. So we're not being left alone. And remember how sad the, the disciples would have been. Christ is leaving them, but he's saying, no, I'm not leaving you alone. The third person of the Trinity is going to be with you. In fact, how long? Forever. He's never going to pick up the the stakes again. He's never going to leave. So it is a tremendously exciting thing. The other thing that's neat to me is the idea that there's two parakletos. We have two advocates. One, the Spirit is praying for us in words too deep for groanings. And then we have... We have Christ in the heavenly realm who's making constant intercession for us. So it's, it's a beautiful thing. We don't just have one parakletos. We actually have two. Um, so, yeah, a beautiful thing. Yeah, oh, Norm. Uh, when you were talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the Ten Commandments, we're talking about the, you know, the Old Covenant has three aspects, three aspects of it. Yeah. Ceremonial law, civil law, and the uh, moral law. Yeah. And uh, in, in Hebrews uh, 8.13, it talks about the Old Covenant is obsolete. Yeah. So we're, we're hanging on to aspects of the Old Covenant, but I would say we're not hanging on to them because they're part of the Old Covenant, but because they're restated again in the New Covenant? Yeah, that's a great, great question. In fact, that's exactly how a professor of mine would say it. He wouldn't like the fact that I used... His, his name is Dr. Ardell Kennedy from Northwestern College, a very good scholar, and he may be right. Maybe I'm forcing categories that I shouldn't onto the text. But here's what I'm saying is at the end of the day, practically, if someone were to ask you, am I bound by circumcision? No. Am I bound by Sabbath? No. Why? Well, why am I still bound? It says in the Old Covenant, thou shall not murder. Am I free from that? Well, of course not. you're not free from that. So practically speaking, you're not free from the, the moral law is always with us. That's the, the distinction I'm trying to make. However, you're right. It's, it's perhaps the best way to look at it is to say the Mosaic law in its entirety has been done away with. But now in the New Covenant, we have portions, obviously, of the moral law, or I should say the moral law that's reiterated and restated. And therefore, again, and I like that, the fact that you're pointing this out, we are bound by the new covenant. We are bound by those terms. Um, yeah, but it, it, ironically, it seems to be synonymous with a lot that was in the moral law or the moral law of the Old Testament. So 
I guess maybe it's an argument of semantics. I still think the ceremonial, civil, and moral aspects help me differentiate between what went away and what's still with us and why. Why is, why is it, why don't I have to, why don't I have to keep circumcision anymore? Well, because Christ is here. The cutting of the seed, you don't have to represent that anymore. It's already there. Uh, you don't have to have separation from society because Messiah is here now. Go out into the world and proclaim his name. It's that sort of idea. So anyway, but it's a great concept. You're exactly right. And our Dell candidate from Northwestern College would say, Amen, Norm. <laughs> so well said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, in verse 19, it talks about uh, Paul saying, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yep. Some verses say the temple. Is there a big difference there? Yeah, and that's what we were just discussing. Is it is it definite? That would be the temple. And that's, according to this Colwell's rule, it would be... 20% likely that it would be definite. But again, think about this. If you're a translator for a Bible, first of all, you pr- I don't know how much time you can spend on any given verse if you can get into this, where scholars that are focusing on the, on the single text can. The other point is, how would you translate qualitative? You would have to use it like an adjective. You're temple-like. And it doesn't... So the point being is, I don't, I'm not bashing the NASB. If you have a temple or the temple, the, the temple is probably preferable because that's really what the reference is back to is the Old Testament temple where you had the dwelling presence of God, okay? And so now that is with us. The favor of God is with us through Christ, yeah. Robert. Yeah, just to follow on uh, Norm's comment, it is interesting to uh, look and see that every one of the Ten Commandments was reiterated in the New Testament except for the Sabbath rest. yeah. And that according to Colossians 2 and Hebrews 4, that when Christ came, he now is our Sabbath rest. And those who have come to true saving faith have found their rest in in him. Amen. Yeah, that's just an encouragement. So I think that goes along with um, your statement about the um, every one of the commandments minus the fourth in, in your slide. Exactly. And that's... Another reason, though, it is a little messy to say, well, the moral law is the Ten Commandments because, well, the fourth one is missing. (laughs) But you're right. It's a beautiful thing. Every day is Sabbath to us. We have our Sabbath rest because we are in Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, yeah. And I know there's some resources out on the website, in the CIC uh, website. Uh, I think both Bob and Ryan have uh, talked about this. Okay, great. further info. Good, good. That's great, yeah. And there's another resource, too, I'd like to make everybody aware of. It's called, oh, what's it called? Three Views on the Law and the Gospel, or maybe it's four. It's put out by Zondervan. Walter Kaiser is a con- Jr. is a contributor. A guy named um, Douglas Moo. Many of you heard of him. And there's a couple others, but they have a, it's a paperback. And it, it basically are four, I think it's four views, perhaps, on in what way does the Old Testament law the mosaic law relate to the new covenant and vice versa and so because it's an extremely important topic because in in real sense the new covenant what is it about that's really what it's about in what way has the old covenant been done away with and so forth so yeah that's a great resource as well very helpful in fact oh yeah go ahead good i was just going to make another comment walter kaiser jr makes a very interesting case that when a we shouldn't run away the law. And this is, I'm a big Walter Kaiser Jr. fan. I think he understands the scriptures well. His point is that we shouldn't run the law out of town based on some passages in Romans because when Paul uses the term law, he uses it in two ways. Sometimes he's talking about Torah. Okay, now isn't it interesting? Torah, 
talks about the coming of Christ, right? And so if people say, well, you can't have righteousness through the law, well, but the law proclaimed Christ, do you see? And so if you run out the law, then what Kaiser is saying is you're running out Christ because Christ is in the law. The writings, the prophets, and the law. So the point being is be careful how you use law and how Paul is using it. Sometimes it's used as Torah, and sometimes it's the Mosaic law. So when you're reading the scriptures, just make sure you understand what Paul is referring to when he's talking about law. Yeah. Um, Christians are often accused uh, by those who are hostile to Christianity of being hypocritical in what we pick and choose to abide by or not in the Mosaic Law. Yeah. Uh, and this especially surfaces with um, discussions of homosexuality. Yeah, yeah. How would you respond to a non-believer um, as far as what applies to us or not? Or Great question. Leviticus 18, obviously homosexuality is sinful. But it's also reiterated, let's say people were to say, well, the Old Covenant also prohibits you eating shellfish, for example. This is why I like the division between the ceremonial, civil, and the moral. Okay, So I would make the distinction between those aspects. The, the civil law and the ceremonial law we are free from. But notice homosexuality is reiterated in the New Covenant, that is the New Testament, that it is in fact sinful. Um, we have Romans chapter 1. We, have, we just looked at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. We have passages clearly that, and I would say, in fact, Jesus' teaching in, on marriage the fact that it's between, he says, as it is from the beginning, you know, they, the two would become one flesh. He's citing Genesis 2.24. That is the plan of God forever. So, do you see what I'm saying? So in other words, the very fact that marriage is always going to be between a man and a woman militates against the idea that it ever can change. It's always going to be part of the moral law. And by the way, in our society today, realize what the debate is. It's not you and I being bigoted against those who want to be homosexual. What it really is is they want to redefine a term to mean what it never meant. If you redefine any term to mean what it never meant, that's being disingenuous. What, what they're asking us to do is to say, you Christians have to change the definition of marriage to a, a definition that we like. And so the idea of tolerance is that you have to accept and approve and give a, approval of our way of life. And my response to that is, and it's very simple, is... Either the word of God declares whether something is right or wrong or someone's feelings do. Now, what I do is I take people to Isaiah 44 and I say, well, the Lord declared Cyrus 150 years before he came about. He declared in Ezekiel 26 the destruction of Tyre accurately, so much so that Tyre, he described 120 years prior to it happening that it would be destroyed and the timbers would be thrown into the sea. Daniel 8 predicts the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires coming by name hundreds of years in advance. That demonstrates that the word of God is the inerrant, that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And so I just ask them, show me your proof that you are God. Because God throws down the same gauntlet. Just show me something that's going to happen in advance so that I may know that you are God and I'll listen to you. But until that time, I'm going with the word of God and therefore I won't change that definition. That's how I would handle it when I'm witnessing to people. Because a lot of times that is going to come up. That is a huge hot-button topic. And, but it's a way for us to witness, to turn the tables and to say, wait a minute, what's the ultimate authority? Is it God's word or your feelings? Sorry, I'm going with God's word, not your feelings. Yeah, yeah. So well said. I'm glad you brought that up. Oh, I'm sorry, we're behind schedule here. Friends, blessings. It's a, a pleasure to t uh, learn the word of God with you. And we'll see you upstairs. We're in the book of Acts again. Praise God.